Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of Snape Chat, Voice of the Snape Dome, exploring the world of Snape in art, fit, meta, and more. This is Snape Centric. Today, I'll be speaking with Zygidinus, author of Ink Stains, which is probably the most literary Snape fic out there. This is the first of two shows. Because we had such a great visit, we sat down later to talk some more. I do have to put out a content warning for explicit sexual content and imagine student-teacher situation. This is in context within the narrative. Enjoy the show. This is Snape-centric. I'm here with Zigadenis, also known as Dr. Zig, and she's going to tell us about her life and her work. We'll get started. Tell us a bit about yourself. Okay, well, first of all, I want to thank you for the opportunity to chat about myself. I am probably going to ramble so much in the course of this interview and feel free to just, you know, (laughs) redirect me um, with a two by four over the head if you need to. (laughs) So a bit about myself. I am not even caffeinated yet today. So that gives you an idea of what it's like living with me. I am a neurodivergent person. I'm on the autism spectrum. I am non-binary or gender non-conforming. I am an asexual person and I'm an indigenous person. As you mentioned, you'll see folks referencing me as Dr. Zig. And I can assure you that aside from having taught a cadaver-based anatomy uh, lab to students in health sciences, I actually have no medical credentials. So I'm not that kind of doctor. I am way more on the mad scientist end of the spectrum. So I'm a specialist in several niche fields of study, all of which are broadly kind of more or less natural history. And that's really all I can tell you without giving away exactly who I am, because the fields that I study are so small that I am Googleable within about five minutes. You can figure me out. So uh, yeah, so I have been most recently in alt act spaces, which are hell, and I am moving back to academic spaces, which are another kind of hell, and I'm looking forward to it because apparently I'm a masochist. So that's me. <laughs> and have you always been a writer? I think I would characterize that as I've always been a storyteller. Ah. So putting a story down into words is, and like the actual writing of it is performing it. So the performance is the work that I do in communicating the story. And so a story in the way I conceive of it is actually a co-creation with an audience. So I'm putting down words. And if I'm doing a good job of that, those words are doing something in your brain and creating a story there. So the story exists in the space between our two brains. So in order to be a storyteller or a writer, a writer, if you want to conceive of writing as performance of story, in order to be a writer, you have to have an audience. And I am not terribly good at recruiting those. And I definitely don't have any outside of AO3. So have I always been a writer? No, because most of the time I don't have an audience. Have I always been a storyteller? Oh, yes. I'm making up stories to amuse myself all the time. That is how I wander through my life. Oh, that's wonderful. As well as writing, you've done some very good art. Is the urge to draw similar to the urge to write for you? I would say definitely not. So like I said, writing for me is like this performance of story as co-creation. And so functionally, that is a search to connect with others and to kind of create community and to have a role in community. Art for me is, it's way more utilitarian and it is technical as opposed to creative. I would not consider myself an artist. I am at best an illustrator. Many, many years ago, I attempted to actually find my way into the art world. And I was abruptly stopped by somebody who told me that he really hoped that I was good at math because as an artist, I should be an accountant. Oh, oh, that's a bad smackdown. Right. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know. 
15 at the time or something and that hurt <laughs> um, and so i stopped doing art for for many many years and i re-entered it via scientific illustration and i was like well actually this is a technical thing that i can do and i can sit and like stipple things and it's very chill and almost meditative and it was something that i was doing from the perspective of creating creating things for publications and for scientific communication. So communicating concepts and like really just creating a product that was very utilitarian. In terms of doing any fan art, like I very do very little. I went back and like actually tried to do like human bodies and human faces, which I was not doing as a scientific illustrator. And I did that for a fest and it flopped to the extent that like even the moderator had nothing to say about my contribution, no comment. Oh, and it was like, oh, ouch, oh. that hurts. So so I've done a few little things in fandom. Just I made some Christmas card art. I was used to send out holiday cards. I would like to start doing that again, but my life has been chaos and flux. And so I have not had a chance to sit down and do holiday cards again. But so you'll find a little bit of my holiday card art on AO3. And it's just something that I'm doing as like a little gift to people. It's not a way that I really feel that I can create community or connection. I My output is not over large and I'm not overly skilled at it. And it takes me a long time to do things that other people just whip off and it's fantastic. And I'm like, how did you do that? You're a genius. So there are many artists who are able to create community and connection and to exist within fandom as artists and to have like this persona as artists in fandom. And I'm thinking about my witch who is amazing and like one of the most generous people in fandom. And she's brilliant. She's brilliant. And I love her stuff so much. And I'm like so grateful to be friends with her. She is somebody who through her art creates community. So it absolutely can be done. I just can't do it. So for me, art is very different than writing. Okay. Let's see. How long have you been publishing your work online? I started putting some stuff on Ashwinder in like 2006 or 2007. And I had some really defeating interactions with a couple moderators there, uh, which caused me to quit writing altogether. Oh, no. Now, Ashwinder, for those of you who are young uns in the fandom, Ashwinder uh, is a private collection of fan works, which they're all very high quality. And I guess people can't make new accounts now because it's uh, it's trended downwards in terms of moderation and just the amount of work that goes into maintaining that community. So I think you can't get access to most of the material anymore, but it was a heavily moderated community that really encouraged a particular quality in terms of writing and characterization and grammar and all the rest of it. And if you read my work, you know that I like to I like to break the rules of grammar everywhere. Sentence fragments, I love those <laughs> because sentence fragments are creating tension. We can talk more about that later, but I do not write to grammatical rules. So after the Ashwinder stuff, I think I did like maybe six or seven chapters of Smart Girls on Ashwinder. And then I just stopped writing altogether because I was just like so tired of being told that I was terrible. I came back and started posting a few things. I started rewriting Smart Girls in like late 2014, I think. And so I started posting that on FFN. And then I made a full move to AO3 in 2016, following some really negative interactions. Mm -hmm. That can be brutal on FFN. Yeah. Well, okay. So people are always asking me like, because if you go onto FFN, you can see some of it in the comments section. 
I would actually like to delete that account on FFN because I'm not participating there anymore. And most of my work isn't there, but I don't have the login credentials for FFN anymore. So that's just going to be there forever. But yeah, but you can see a little bit of it. You can't see the worst of it because they were anonymous comments that I was able to delete. Where this came from is not from SSHG haters, which is where it's coming from now for people who are, for people who are experiencing vitriol and like really negative interactions on FFN or on other platforms. There are a lot of antis and haters of both Snape and SSHG. And that is absolutely a real thing. My negative interactions were actually coming from the SSHG community because I pissed off some people in a Facebook group. Oh gosh. Most of these people are not active in fandom anymore. I haven't seen them in years. So I'm just going to like give you like the brief overview of this. Basically, somebody was using a Facebook group to recruit authors for their paper mill. And I was annoyed by this as an academic who has to deal with plagiarized papers and has to deal with going up in front of courts of law because people are upset that they've been kicked out of their university because they've, you know, recruited a paper writer to write their term paper for them. So the entire thing about academic misconduct just annoys the living shit out of me. And I hope I can swear. I, I know I can swear. I've listened to the podcast. People say fuck all the time. I'm going to drop that so much. <laughs> all right. <laughs> it annoys the fucking shit out of me when people are engaging in academic misconduct because it's not that hard to do your own work. So I was really annoyed by this person who was using a fandom space to recruit collaborators in their enterprise to, to engage in something that is actually illegal. Oh, so is that like Wattpad or something like that? No, um, I'm not going to give any more details because uh, these people have the right to not be doxxed. But I will say that they got upset about me being upset and they were way more entrenched in the broader SSHG community than I was at that time. I mean, I've been around forever. I've been like lurking since like 2003, 2004, somewhere in there, but they were really more entrenched and they had fans and stuff of their writing and they were able to mobilize a huge contingent of that community to engage in some really negative and brutal things, including, and I don't know how widespread the actions were. There may have just been like two or three people who were engaging in this and everyone else was like, I'm just not getting involved. So they were like bystanders, you know, I think that's probably what happened is that most people were just like, this is a nuclear hot situation and I'm not going to touch either of these people. But yeah, I got a lot of threats of like doxing and rape and oh, for like God's brutalization. Sense. And, you know, there's a contingent of people who write some really graphic stuff in terms of violence and brutality towards women. And they are okay on some level with writing that towards other authors. And so it was just a really bad situation. And I moved over to AO3 entirely in order to not have to deal with that. And so I stopped updating my works. So that's like a lot of fandom history that you probably did not need to know. But basically I was hot nuclear waste for a while and possibly still am. Like I said, most of these people have moved on from fandom and I don't see them active anymore. But I will be here until the world ends. Like they'll turn the lights out and I'll be like hanging out in the background, still partying. Well, there you go. I'll party with you. <laughs> okay. We're there. I got the playlist. I got the playlist sorted. <laughs> All right. Oh, yes. Your stories often feature Snape and Hermione as partners. What attracts you to this pairing? 
Okay, so I am attracted to interesting characters. I want to write interesting characters, and I like when interesting characters are foils to each other. So Snape and Hermione are, they're both like these two acutely intelligent people, and they are each outsiders and misunderstood in their own unique ways. So Snape is easy from this perspective. So canonically, he is an outsider. He's subject to socioeconomic class stratification, which there's no real counterpart in the U.S. for the the very rigidity of socioeconomic class in the U.K. Maybe the closest thing that gets to it in the U.S. is when you consider like resource allocation to schools based on taxation and demographics. So in the U.S., there are usually these pockets, usually in inner cities, where there are substantial limits to the resources that are given to schools and community supports. And so this creates like pockets of what is essentially ghettoization, right? Where it's very difficult, if you don't get a good education, it's very difficult to get into a good school and to get the credentials and the networks that would help you move up. So extrapolate that dynamic without the racism. The racism is so real in the US and racism is real in the UK too. But for the most part, the vast majority of people in the UK are not like they're they're white, right? And so every group of people wants to aggress on every other group of people. And when you don't when you don't have easy things to aggress about, like the color of your skin, you aggress about more complicated things. And so that's what's happening in the Harry Potter books more than anything else. Yes, uh, JKR brought in the whole pure blood versus muggle-born thing and created this weird racial tension thing, which actually doesn't translate straight across to like Nazism. We can talk more about that later if you care, or I have like oh, yeah. I have lots of thinking thoughts about that. Getting back to Snape, he is the poor kid from like a lower social class. He is absolutely not of the same social class as James and Sirius. Right. They're the they're the rich kids. They come from privilege. And so Snape is an outsider because he's smart. So he's uppity and he's trying to transcend what should be his normal class boundaries and his poverty, the neglect that he suffered as a child. He probably has like multiple ACEs. You did a great podcast about Snape needing therapy. And so he has ACEs are adverse childhood experiences for people who aren't up on the psych lingo. ACEs, lots of people have them. And Snape definitely does, just based upon the childhood that we understand canonically. So he has a lot of trauma. He's coming in with it. Um, his brain himself, like that sets himself aside as well. He's busy creating spells. He's creating potions. He's really, really smart. So he's this weird oddball kid, as Sirius calls him. And he's an outsider from the very beginning. And then we add in all of the trauma of bullying, which culminates in an attempted murder somewhere before fifth year or in the beginning of fifth year. And then in his fifth year, he's sexually assaulted, like physically and sexually assaulted down by the lake. And I would just want to make it clear that like, if you switch the gender in that scene, Snape's worst memory, you switch the gender in that scene, and this happens to a girl, everybody recognizes it as sexual assault. Absolutely. We understand, even though it's not written there, we understand that the next bit after he calls Lily a mudblood and she flees the scene, the next bit is that they they depants him. You do that to a girl, that's sexual assault. And I don't understand why people don't see that if you're doing it to a boy. So Snape is, he's a really complicated character and he has a lot of baggage, even just if you look at like the canonical stuff. Okay, and so then you add in his work as a spy. And that's also gonna set him as an outsider because now he can't make connections with people. 
He can't make connections with people on the pure blood side. He can't make connections in the school. He is an outsider and he is very alone, just canonically. I also tend to handcat in him as on the autism spectrum. And I think pretty much now he lives fully fledged in my brain as someone who is neurodivergent. So yeah, so Snape is really, really complicated and interesting in those ways. Oh, yes. Hermione is also complicated. So book Hermione, she starts off functionally friendless and she's a know-it-all. And it's not until the troll incident that she really has any friends. She does have a friendship with Neville, but that's more of like a codependency kind of friendship because she's like, she's there helping Neville. Neville needs her help and protection. And she's latched onto him as somebody that she can satisfy a need for. And that's why he'll tolerate her. But until the troll incident, she's not friends with anybody. And the troll incident is really their only decide to hang out with Hermione because she lies to the teachers and like gets them out of trouble. So it sets up this dynamic where Harry and Ron, their friendship with Hermione is very utilitarian through the first several books. They don't seem to recognize when they harm her, they mock her, and they discard her when it's convenient. So she is very alone as well. Something interesting starts happening in book four. In book four, she undergoes her magical makeover because she's finally found a man who likes women who are smart and likes her because she's smart. And I think that that is really a bad cop-out on JKR's part. And I think it's bad character development. And the next time we see Hermione in book five, she's on her trajectory to becoming Bamf Hermione, badass motherfucker Hermione, where, you know, who takes no shit from anyone and all of this. And I think that what was happening in the real world at the same time as this magical transformation of Hermione's from friendless know-it-all bookworm to Bamf Hermione, what's happening in the real world is that Emma Watson came on as Hermione on screen. And there's all this massive pressure on JKR to start writing a strong female character. Mm -hmm. So here we get into all of my like frustration over what strong female characters are. So when we look at characters in popular media and popular literature who are understood as strong female characters, they are belligerent, they are action-oriented, they are confrontational, they're girls with balls. So we have a strong patriarchal view or a patriarchal gaze of what strength looks like. We only understand in popular media, we only understand strength as being like aggression and confrontation and not taking any shit and... I don't think that is a holistic view of what strength can be. So one of the authors that I like in science fiction is Lois McMaster Bejold, who catches hell all the time for one of her characters, Ekaterin Vorspasson. Ekaterin is, uh, I think she's actually a really strong character because she grapples with having been in this complicated and abusive relationship. She finds her way out of that relationship while making sure that she's protecting her son. And she finds romance with somebody else. And she confronts herself and says, this person is problematic. And I understand these problems. And I can draw boundaries so that this person that I'm in love with, even though he's problematic, I can make sure to keep a core of myself for me. That's really strong. Even though Ekaterin's whole trajectory is moving from one bad relationship to another relationship that has some problems, but she's decided she can be happy in that other relationship because she knows who she is and she can always keep herself safe. So I'm interested and I think that fiction needs more representations of women as complicated, messy, interesting human beings, not just these cardboard cutouts of what strength can be, but these interesting human beings. And I think that one of the core tenets 
evidence of real strength is an ability to confront yourself. So Nasuke Teopsum, y'all, if you're, if you're reading Ink Stains or if you decide to read Ink Stains. So I'll talk a little bit about the Snape-Hermione dynamic and why that appeals to me. Yes. Uh, in particular. Since I just talked about like, why are these characters interesting to me? Because they're complicated. And I've given you like sort of my trajectory of why I think they're complicated. Why are they interesting together? So a lot of people will say that they enjoy the sniping and the banter between Hermione and, and Severus. And that Hermione is like the only character who could offer Severus a challenge or a good argument. Speaking as someone, so I don't think I'm a flaming genius or anything. I don't think I'm all that smart, maybe smarter than the average bear. But as somebody who exists in academia and surrounded by a multitude of very highly intelligent people, I just want to say that it's the people who aren't all that smart, like objectively, those are the people who like to argue by and large, really smart people lead lives where they are persistently having to argue their point of view to people who don't get it. And they're having to explain themselves time and time and time again. And it's really exhausting. People who are really smart are also really othered. Um, either their intelligence or their interests set them aside, or people just exclude them because they're boring, or they perceive people and the situations as so differently, um, or they perceive themselves so differently that they just experience life as a persistent lack of connection. So there's this deep loneliness at the core of being smart, where you don't really connect with other humans, or you don't feel like you do, or you don't feel like you belong. So what attracts me to these characters in particular is that they could conceivably each find this sense of belonging with the other. There's this sense that there's, you know, there's somebody else like me out there. And that is very compelling. So in finding belonging, they could actually let their guards down. They wouldn't have to argue with Hermione necessarily. And she wouldn't have to be bossy and do all the thinking for him. And those things, having to argue with everybody in order to get your point across, having to do everybody's thinking for them, having to like do the disaster planning all the time, having to think everything through and be the smartest person in the room, that is fucking exhausting. Yes. And you know what? You know what's beautiful? A competent person who solves a problem by themselves and then presents you with a solution fait accompli or like somebody who figures out their own shit. That is beautiful. <laughs> and that is like a space where I think that Hermione and Snape could be really good with each other because they finally like just like, ah. Oh, big sigh like you get me and I'm safe here and I can I can be myself finally so that's my whole thought about it I guess talking more about instincts maybe after you read would be a good place for that you just really hit the nail on the head as far as the otherness and to be able to well the other thing uh, you know two intelligent people can do is kind of communicate in shorthand yeah absolutely yeah, just very appealing about pair. Do you write about other pairings or fandoms? I'm interested in friendship dynamics in HP, and I don't mind reading some other pairings. I don't, I'm not reading a lot of, I'm not reading any fic when I'm actively writing because I don't want to like do that cross-pollination, cross-contamination thing. Sure. I don't have a problem with other pairings. I just, I don't tend to write them because the characters aren't that interesting to me. I could definitely see like Harry and Nico, that would work. But those characters, I'm not interested in writing Harry because I think he's kind of a tool and he's annoying. And so like, yeah. I don't want to ever <laughs> use him as a viewpoint character. 
And I don't really ever want to use uh, Draco as a viewpoint character because, again, he's not that interesting to me. His arc is pretty well done and other people are, you know, I, I don't feel a lot of connection with those characters. Sure. So I don't write other pairings. In terms of other fandoms, I keep threatening to write a fic for the viewpoint of Cuthbert Binns, who as a historian, he is obviously going to be inspired exclusively by fantasy's most infamous and glamorous <laughs> historian, the great Parfi of Roundwood, and nobody else who's listening to that um, it's going to get that joke, but I think it's hilarious. And so anyways, that's another book wreck. Um, if you want a cool author to read, read Stephen Bruce. And his Parfi of Roundwood books are basically a riff on the D'Artagnan romances of um, Alexandre Dumas' pair. Oh, so they're hilarious. I love them so much. Something else to look at. I don't know. I get a little bit stuck in SSHG. Yeah, I read so much trash outside of like, I read so much trash. I enjoy all kinds of pop literature and pop fiction, science fiction. I would say that probably most of my reading is it's pretty much equally split between what is considered highbrow canlet and Britlet. And then I read like crap science fiction. <laughs> Which I love, I adore it so much. Kind of like Snape does in your story. It extends. He's reading it for very different reasons, though. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, poor guy. <laughs> I'm so mean. <laughs> I'm so mean to all these characters that I enjoy so much. Like, I'd like to be friends with them, but they would not like me as a friend because I would just be like always constantly poking them to do horrible things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Your work is very intellectual. There's many references to art, literature, science, and so on. Are these things already in your store of knowledge or do you research some things? I like this question. Uh, <laughs> I wander through my life for the most part, like I said, as a storyteller or maybe as a magpie uh, or the Cree word in Nihuan is apskigagakis. And so I'm like probably philosophically aligned with magpies in a lot of ways. Right. And like a magpie, my brain collects things that pique its interest as something that might be cool to put in a story. So either as a plot detail or like a metaphor or description or motif. And so I absolutely do go and research things to make sure that I'm getting details correct. But there is so much trash and clutter in my brain because I have seen something that I'm like, oh, that's a cool thing. I can put that in a story and I'll just keep it. And it'll be in my brain for years and years and years. And then I'll be like, I remember something about that. Or wouldn't this be a cool detail to sprinkle in? And it's just my brain is a cluttered mess. Well, I so enjoy that in your stories. Although I have to admit, I read on my tablet and I do the thing where you Google it right away. Mm, you're an excellent reader. I love, I love readers like that. I'm always putting in so many little Easter eggs and things. Yes. I have one reader who particularly loves playing that game with me. You'll see her in the comments as Bray27 and on LJ as Beffy Sue. And I just, I love her so much <laughs> because she will literally sit and like spend hours deconstructing the little scientific Easter eggs I've sprinkled in. And oh, I just great. like, I'm now I'm just putting them in there just for her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. So I enjoy people who enjoy the, um, the Easter eggs and deconstructing things and looking things up. Yeah, I don't have enough brains to, I'm not good at playing any games, but still I get a lot of enjoyment out of it. Then it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth my doing it. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, yes, your work can be considered challenging for various reasons. Have you ever been tempted to compromise your writing in order to reach a wider audience? 
Yeah, so my work is challenging both from the fact that I sprinkle in a lot of probably bullshit details in terms <laughs> of like science stuff. So it's it's pretty heavily researched and I do a lot of complicated things in terms of the structure of the narratives that I put together. I write complicated dialogue. I, you know, some people just get turned off by the characterization choices that I've made. There's a lot of reasons that my work can be considered challenging or like unlikable. And, you know, I've just decided that my work is my work comprises the ketchup chips of this fandom. So uh, or crisps for people across the pond. (laughs) Ketchup chips is a flavor that exists in Canada and nowhere else. Oh, goodness. And Canadians have a peculiar relationship to ketchup chips. Now, when I'm talking about ketchup chips or ketchup crisps, uh, you have to understand that they don't actually taste like ketchup. They're like some weird combination of vinegar and hatred. (laughs) And like, you know, if you took a ketchup bottle into a back alley and beat this shit out of it and then like poured that on chips, that's maybe ketchup chips. I don't know. (laughs) They're weird. They're somewhat unpleasant and then like also quasi enjoyable. And you get a group of Canadians together, especially like Canadians down in the States or Canadians abroad. And you mention ketchup chips or like you get somebody to say, ew, ketchup chips, ketchup on chips. That's so gross. And all the Canadians will be like, it's wonderful. Even if they secretly <laughs> prefer like Miss Vicky's malt uh, vinegar and sea salt, which is like my favorite kind of crisps. But <laughs> regardless of what their actual preference is, they will glom on to ketchup chips as part of our cultural identity. Um, and like ketchup chips are fine. I like them. They're great. They're not my favorite. But I think my writing is the ketchup chips of fandom. It's something that like people will find some part of their identity in my writing. And those people who connect with it really connect with it. And it's incredible, like the discussions that break out down in the comment section and like the sheer caliber of really smart readers who are engaged with this work. And it's sometimes terrifying to me because I'm like, oh God, I'm not actually that smart. They're going to figure it out. But that's just imposter syndrome talking. And I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll work through that. But so I think that my work is like, you know, it's the ketchup chips of fandom. And so I, to ask, was I ever t- tempted to compromise my writing? Uh, yeah. I definitely tried that. Um, I would like to reach more people. I would like to have an audience. I would like for people to engage with my work because I'm not doing this work for me. I do lots of other stuff for me, including the stuff that I have to write professionally in order to advance professionally. So I have no shortage of things that I have to write and things that I want to write. I'm writing this stuff in the hopes of connecting with an audience to to perform story and exist in this community space where we are co-creating something. And I would love to have more of that. And I would love to reach more people. The thing is, is like ketchup chips, I'm not going to because the rest of the world is like fucking ketchup chips. Why would you do that? And even people (laughs) who like ketchup chips are like fucking ketchup chips. I don't want those unless I've had two pints already. (laughs) Um, So I, I tried, I tried to write something that would be more palatable to the majority. And that something was lies and red ink. And it fucking became ink stains in my head before I even posted the second chapter. So like, I just write this way. I just do. So my work now on a personal front is reconciling who I am and how I write with what the world wants. And just like the world in general does not want me or ketchup chips, um, I have to learn to accept that my writing is just an extension of that existential truth. Like it's, it's gonna 
you know, most people are going to recoil in disgust. And I guess I have to be okay with that because that's just who I am. And I can try and do something else, but then it becomes ink stains. I have to ask about ketchup chips. Do you put mayonnaise on them? Is that a thing in Canada? No, they would taste, they would taste horrible. They would taste horrible if you did that. Okay. If you but did that, they would taste nasty. Some people put mayonnaise on their French fries, right? Yes. In, in Canada. Um, yeah, so that's that's pretty common in Quebec. The other thing you put on French fries or chips, as the Brits call them, um, <laughs> we're doing this whole like chips, crisp fries thing. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that you put on chips or fries is gravy and cheese curds, and then you call it poutine, and it's a heart attack in a basket, and it's delicious. Oh, oh goodness. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I I don't think ketchup chips or ketchup crisps would taste at all good with mayonnaise. I think that that would be horrifying. But now I'm gonna go and try it. Like next time I have a bag of ketchup crisps around here, I'm going to try it because I want to know. If we're talking about horrifying food combinations, like, can I also just put out props sure. for my favorite sandwich, which is you can't buy these in the store. You have to make them dilled carrots. It's basically a dill pickle and you use carrots. So you take those and you put them on peanut butter on brown bread. And that is exquisite. Mm. So in terms of horrifying food combos, that particular recipe is never going to wind up in ink stains. I drop food into ink stains all the time, but that one is never going to land because I know that it's horrifying, <laughs> but it's delicious. <laughs> try it. You can try it with dill pickles, like actual uh, gherkins, but it's oh, not as good as with dill carrots. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. My thing is, is Braunschweiger, which is a liver sausage and grape jelly. That would and, work. Yeah. It's kind of a sweet, smooth taste. I don't yeah, know. That would work. Yeah. That would work. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> All our strange food things, right? Right. What's Snape's strange food thing? What do you think that he likes the most that other people would be horrified by? Oh, trying to think. Probably something he ate as a kid. I don't know. I have to do like, I have to do culinary research on this oh, and decide yes. what is the most <laughs> horrifying thing. It doesn't actually taste good. And then I'll put that, then I'll put that in ink stains and everyone will be like, oh, oh there you go. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's dirt, but I don't know if that's horrifying or not. Depends on where you live. I, I mean, I think like headcanon him is somebody who just really likes salt <laughs> for like the. Um... So something salty. Yes. Because yeah. he's kind of salty himself. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Oh, you know, I really love being challenged, by the way. I like having to work, I guess, as a reader. And so, you know, looking things up is one of those things. In ink stains, you have Severus describing emotions as having colors, which are linked to memories. How did you come up with such an interesting concept? Okay, well, this is this is true of anybody who writes. If it's interesting, it's because I stole it. So <laughs> I, I stole this idea, like whole wholesale. Color is throughout art and literature. Color is intrinsically linked to emotion. Everything from the yellow wallpaper in Charlotte Gilman Perkins' story of the same name to you see blue cropping up everywhere in art, and it denotes wealth or it denotes virginity. It's really uh, highly associated with the Virgin Mary in most ecclesiastical art, and certainly throughout the Renaissance and all periods earlier blue is like highly tied to sanctity. And so the idea of color being symbolic for things, either symbolic in a religious or spiritual sense, or just symbolic of particular emotions, that is something that crops up everywhere in literature. Now, then the other part of this sort of setup is memory. Now, memory is, if we look at this from like a scientific perspective, memory is linked to emotion. So if we think about where memory is processed and stored in the brain, I mean, if it's stored, 
But the part of the brain that's responsible for processing events and embedding them as memories is the limbic system. And so in particular, the, the hippocampus, which is like the seat of memory, and then the amygdala, those are like two key components of the limbic system. And, and the amygdala is responsible for your deep emotion, your fight or flight responses, but like any kind of like really, really deep emotion. And so long-term memory the most persistent kinds of long-term memory are all kind of emotionally processed or emotionally encoded. And that's what PTSD is, right? So PTSD is feeling or being in a situation where you're evoking the strong emotions that are also evoking deep memories of trauma. So people have like battlefield flashbacks where they're in a situation in their non- military life or like non-traumatized life where they feel a lot of helplessness or fear or anger. And it gives them an instant flashback to the last time they experienced that emotion. So we know that memory and emotion are intrinsically linked. So then the question is, and like, this is where I'm starting to play with things is like, what is legitimacy? Legitimacy is kind of looking at thoughts and memories, right? To some extent, that's what we see it as being written. And so like, there's a visual element to it. So I start asking the question of like, okay, so how do you reconcile the fact that human beings like to link emotion to color? We know that our memories are linked to emotions. And then we have this visual element that we bring in with legitimacy. So the answer to all of this, I have decided is the fusiform gyrus of the brain. This is the region of the brain that is responsible for processing color information. It's also involved in like word recognition, and so when parts of the fusiform gyrus uh, don't light up properly on a functional MRI, you can see that in people who are dyslexic. The other things that the fusiform gyrus seems to do are categorical thinking, so grouping by likeness, and people who have prosopagnosia or like lack of face recognition, they tend to have, you know, their fusiform gyrus doesn't light up when they see faces the way it would in a neurotypical person. So all I'm describing here are also things that happen in autism spectrum disorders. So people who are on the autism spectrum have limited functioning or different functioning of the fusiform gyrus. If you hook them up to a functional MRI and fMRI, if they are on the autism spectrum, their fusiform gyrus doesn't light up the same way that a neurotypicals does. So we have, uh, just to recap that, so we have processing of color information, we have word recognition, categorical thinking, so grouping by likeness, face recognition, and then there's obviously attendant disorders. So if we think about autism spectrum as being a disorder, which I don't, it's just a different way of thinking, but it's classified as a disorder. So you'll see ASD in the literature. The other thing that happens with weird connections in the fusiform gyrus is you can get synesthesia. So people who experience synesthesia, and I experienced some mild forms of it in addition to like lack of face recognition and the whole spectrum of autism spectrum stuff. I'm also dyslexic. So like there's stuff wrong with my fusiform gyrus, if you want to say like wrong as compared to a neurotypical condition. But anyway, synesthesia also happens when wires get crossed in this region of the brain. And so I think legitimacy is kind of like a type of magical synesthesia. The other thing, Ooh. oh, the other really cool thing that happens with the fusiform gyrus is that this is probably where pedunkular hallucinations derive from, miswiring in this area. 
Now, pedocular hallucinations are super cool because they are visual hallucinations that people have, usually in a dark room, so where they don't have other visual information, but they are visual hallucinations that happen without distortion. So they're vivid and they're colorful and they're realistic. And people know that they're hallucinations, because, but they happen. And so I think that like legitimacy is probably a kind of synesthesia mixed with pedunkular hallucinations mixed with extra magic sauce. And <laughs> so this is why I have linked color and the perception of color and emotional processing and memory all together. And I've said that like, this is what's happening when we're talking about occlumency and legitimacy in particular. So that is the scientific rationale for what I have done. I think that like, it's really you're breaking up. Oh, no. One idea might be to turn off your, your video so there's more. Yeah, I'm going to do that. Uh -huh. Room for the, the audio to come through. Yep. Okay, video is off. Okay, now uh, can we back up? <laughs> oh, so okay, just backing up a little bit. You're just kind of wrapping say, it all up. Yeah, so I was going to say a little bit about Severus and autism. So I do think that this, this character is written in ways that are consistent with a diagnosis of probably really high functioning Asperger's. So the, I have like, like canonical based reasons for thinking that, and I have my own perceptions as somebody who is on the autism spectrum. But I also just want to say that like JKR based her characters on real people. And she was at the beginning of writing this stuff, she was writing like nasty little asides about real people, which is problematic for a lot of reasons. But the real person that she based Snape on, John Nettleship, is somebody who identified as being on the autism spectrum. He identified as having Asperger's. So I think that a lot of what we see in Snape's characterization is his inability to relate properly to other people and to just be kind of like slightly off in all kinds of social situations is probably, probably reflects like real lack of ability to see and understand the kinds of visual information that are necessary to proper social interaction. People sometimes rebel against this diagnosis for Snape because they're like, but he was a spy. And I'm like, you know, people who are ASD, people who are neurodivergent in this way, we go through our lives acting. We literally sit down and diagnose what a situation is and we decide what role am I going to play in this situation and we put on a persona and we say, this is the act that I'm going to do today. So Snape's classroom dramatic personality, that's an act. I mean, he's studied that and he's decided I'm going to be very swish and I'm going to be authoritative and I'm going to be kind of a bully and like it's all like a put on thing. So it's not that different for him to switch and put on a different persona in order to be a Death Eater spy and a different persona. And the places where you don't see him really having a persona are places where he's uncomfortable and he's not sure what's going to happen. And then, then you see the cracks in his persona. I'm just trying to picture him in a classroom full of dunderheads. I just think he's so exhausted all the time. And this is okay. I'm just going to like provide a little bit of railing against everybody who thinks he gets up to all kinds of sexual shenanigans down in the dungeons. Like he has no energy <laughs> for that. Do you know how long it takes to mark things? You have no idea how much work. I mean, I look at the amount yes. of homework he assigns and I'm like, oh God, he never slept. He never slept. Somebody estimated that he worked like a hundred hours a week. What with teaching and marking and- uh, Definitely. And roaming the halls. Hallway, yeah, hallway patrols. And, and then you have to add in like all of his spying stuff and like- right. <sighs> and oh my god like when does he have a chance to just have a cup of coffee and read the newspaper yeah yeah the poor guy 
I mean, it's no wonder he had no fucking time for a shower. He's like, fuck, it's fine. Yeah. I'm just teaching. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> if I don't smell too bad. <laughs> it's like, you know, checking his robes. Does this stink? Is there stains? Okay, we're good. Let's go. Right. <laughs> Saturdays, he just like laid in bed and he was like, this is perfect. Oh God, there's marking to do. Oh God. And so it'd be like three hours of existential angst. Do I get out of bed today or not? And then he ultimately uh-huh. he would solve it by just like levitating the papers over to his bed and like calling on the kitchen for coffee. And he'd lie in his bed, marking papers, thinking, I there want to go. die. I want to die. <laughs> <laughs> he hated teaching. There was like, he hated it so much. And he was just trapped there. Yeah. All right. <laughs> such a, such a waste of a brilliant potioner. Yes. I guess we wouldn't have met him otherwise, right? So, True. If he wasn't at that school. Would you mind reading a passage from your work for us? Okay, I can do that. It's long, so feel free. If you are listening to the podcast and you need to go and get a beer, feel free to do that right now. I'm going to read you chapter five of Ink Stains. And to put this in context, Hermione has just broken up with Ron, or rather Ron's broken up with her because she did not have the balls to ever end that for herself. She did not have a self-awareness to ever in that for herself, as becomes very apparent in the story. So she's broken up with Ron, and she is finally examining something that she has failed to examine for, for pretty personal reasons, and that's the putative or potential existence of Severus Snape as a walking, breathing person following his untimely demise, which wasn't a demise in The Shrieking Shack. So to set this up as context for people who haven't let read Lies and Red Ink, Hermione was engaged in kind of a little bit of marginalia correspondence with Snape. Like he would like write little citations on her papers and they were starting to work on polyjuice potion, like an extension of that potion, the, the time frame in which it would be active. And so this was happening throughout kind of like the canonical school year, starting from about fifth year through to the night at the tower. And she in for very complicated reasons has been involved with Ron for a period of time. And she put aside all of that potions work and at some point picked it back up and actually published it in a scientific journal. And when she receives her copy of the the reprint or the, the published copy of the paperback, she also gets a note in the mail that has Snape's handwriting. And then she proceeds to ignore that more or less for a decade. So this is where we're coming is she's finally starting to think about like, is Snape alive? And how could that be? And so she's trying to figure out the intellectual problem of it. So having given you all of that completely unnecessary background, here is chapter five. Antivenins are a dead end, dead and gone. The sheer volume that would have to be administered into the bloodstream is impossible to accomplish via the kind of circumspect encapsulation she's envisioned as this method for controlled release. She frowns at the graveyard of scrap paper littering her table. It's the first time she's really had a good look at this problem, faced it square on. First, there was Ronald, who might have broken his sterling track record and actually been curious about what she was working on. And second, she didn't want to know it was impossible. She still doesn't. She retrieves another cup of coffee from Laszlo. This afternoon's marzipan is tinted a delicate pink and it's covered over in luscious dark chocolate. She nibbles it delicately and reassesses the mess on her table. The way she sees it, there are two big problems. 
neurotoxins, and disseminated intravascular coagulopathy. She wasn't close enough to see drooping eyelids and his speech wasn't slurred, but he was definitely in the throes of muscle fasciculation. The scenes writ large in her memory with the trembling helpless spasms progressing into rigor, his fingers curled to arachnoid claws. It's the acetylcholine pathway that's under attack, the neurotoxins binding to receptors. She flips through her dog-eared copy of the British National Formulary. Isn't myasthenia gravis an acetylcholine receptor problem? What do they use for that? Neostigmine. It's been on the books since 1931. And what's more, ha, it's been used for a snake bite. No one gives him credit for being a brilliant muggle the way they say he was a brilliant wizard. She thinks he was probably just plain brilliant, irrespective of descriptive nouns. But there are still the cytotoxic effects. The phospholipases break down cell walls, rupturing them so that their contents spew out into the bloodstream. But that could be dealt with. Blood replenishing potion, if nothing else. No, it's, it's the prothrombin-like molecules that interfere with the fibrinogen cascade that are the kiss of death. They initiate microscopic clotting throughout the smallest vessels of the body. Enough of them would turn blood to jelly, but what happens is actually a more prolonged agony. The clots tear through and occlude capillaries and small vessels. Meanwhile, the venom reaction progresses, using up the remaining platelets in this sadistic co-option of the body's repair system. And without platelets, the wounds inflicted by the passage of microclots can't be patched. And so the victim begins to bleed out into their tissues. But his skin was paper white. And while he bled out, it was rather more external than you'd expect from coagulopathy. So she doesn't think that she's wrong about anticoagulants, but then why didn't he begin to leak uncontrollably when he smashed through the plate glass window? Surely there were cuts and scrapes. To manage such precise timing between the great hall and the shrieking shack when he couldn't have known what was coming, well, it's beyond the realm of plausibility. Even with anticoagulants, he would still have needed countless transfusions or better yet, cryoprecipitates of fresh frozen plasma. And at this point, her various scenarios necessarily involve co-conspirators, accomplices. If he'd had them, he would never have been in a position of desperately needing them in the first place. Occam's razor is so sharp, you might not even feel it if you chose to slit your wrists. She flips back through her notebook and peruses again the pages she's marked in the heaps of books now surrounding her feet. All evidence points in one direction. And the only thing that's clear from all her equations and calculations is that which has been obvious from the beginning. Severus Snape had been well and thoroughly fucked. But her original idea, using elastin or alginates to construct coatings for dried pelletized precipitates of therapeutic potions, that's a good one, a touch brilliant even, and it's applicable to any number of different compounds and you can vary the thickness of the coating so as to sustain release over longer durations. So this hasn't all been in vain. She writes it up as a short note for the theory section. Someone else is welcome to apply the requisite elbow grease. Besides, citations all look the same, whether it's a full study or not. It takes her a couple days to get a submission-worthy draft prepared, and by that time, it's Christmas. It's snowed again, and Diagon Alley is strangely hushed. Everyone is home with their families, opening gifts, getting started on the branded eggnog, salivating at the prospect of roast goose and all the trimmings. She feels like a leper, 
squeaking through the untrammeled snow on her way to hire a post owl. She should buy one of her own or demand that Ronald give her theirs. But there's a no pets policy on her lease that she'd have to skirt. So this is easier if somewhat uncomfortable. Hannah Longbottom waves at her as she passes through the leaky, but she brandishes her envelope on high, gestures in the direction of post and escapes any sympathy or forced holiday cheer. She should celebrate, she thinks. She's got another paper over the transom and that's an accomplishment. But the Hungarian cafe is closed, so she can't indulge in the next thing she was intending to try, a confection called an Esterhazy Torta. Operating home holds no appeal. There's nothing to do there. So she walks and takes the underground and walks some more. Nothing's open, but she browses windows for lack of anything better to do. Well, not nothing. There's an off license with a neon open sign. She supposes they must do brisk business. By early evening, surely the glitter has worn off the Christmas tree or people are discovering that their supply of social lubricant is insufficient to the task of dealing with Uncle Horace. She grabs a bottle of something, nearly at random, from the tequila shelf. At 37 pounds, it should constitute enough celebration. And the streets have gotten dark, so she'd best be on her way home. Miss Cal, it sounds exotic anyway. The label's plain, a winged woman with a headdress. She looks a bit Aztec, but could just as easily be Mayan. Where is Oaxaca anyway? She thinks it might be one of those lush Mexican seaside states, someplace where you can down on a weather-worn cliff and hear the waves crashing in on a beach so bright it hurts your eyes. Or maybe with volcanic mountains, rugged, cloaked in mist. Somewhere that's as far away from this London bedset as to be another planet. She pours a finger in the bottom of a glass then sips experimentally. It's rougher than tequila with smoky overtones. Drinking it will be akin to self-flagellation maybe instead of festivity. The notion appeals to her, and she pours another finger. Might as well do this properly. But if she's going to get plastered, she should have hangover relief on hand. She sets her glass down with a sigh. The best laid plans. Ground to halt on her failure to hit up the apothecary when she was in Diagon Alley. Well, but she pulled an O in potions. Just because she hasn't brewed anything in ages doesn't mean she can't. She's a bloody expert in potions, according to her publication record. Times past, brewing might have precipitated a row with Ronald, but that's not an issue. Or it might have made her maudlin, but hell, she's holding up all right so far, isn't she? She tips detritus out of her trunk and arranges her old potions kit across her bed. Cauldron, scales, glassware, dried ingredients, mortars, pestles, stirring rods, aha! Manual in which she's carefully transcribed the instructions Professor Snape had written on the board. Good because it's been years and it would be too pitifully ironic if she poisoned herself inadvertently. When did they brew hangover relief? Fifth year and just before the holiday break, wasn't it? Sure it was. She remembers muffling her grin and watching most of Slytherin do the same. His instructions that day were tacit permission to get completely soaked, so long as they didn't inconvenience him or Madame Pomfrey in the morning. The other Gryffindors hadn't appreciated the gift or the joke. She dices, slices, stirs, and strains. Look, she's being a responsible adult, planning to be a productive member of society come morning. She snorts into her glass. Damn, it's empty again. She refills it, two fingers, five. Who's even counting anymore? She haphazardly clears her bed and settles back against the headboard to think about Professor Snape. She'd never gone to his office hours. If she'd actually imposed upon his time, he might've ended their conversation. Arm's length. 
genuine enough to see that as the key. No favors in class, no acknowledgement of the dialogue carried out on parchment. Was it a flirtation via citation? She certainly wanted his good opinion, but she thinks her younger self would probably have been mildly appalled at her illicit daydreams of his fingertips tracing the mound of her breasts. She trails her own fingers down, expertly popping the buttons one at a time. She is visualizing his hands performing this task, his eyes intent upon the flesh she can already feel expanding across her chest. It's the liquor, surely. But suppose she had trekked down to the dungeons, turned up in some muggle civvies. No, she'd have gone in her school uniform, itchy wool stockings and all. Hermione Granger didn't break rules. Much. She can't envision any linear flow of speech that would lead from point A to point up on the prep bench. But logic and likelihood don't matter. He'll just back her against the bench, snare her with some oblique cunning remark. He wouldn't undo her shirt after all. He'd just lift it to press his cool hand against the bare skin at the bottom of her ribcage. A challenge. Do we go on from here? Say the word. She'll have given him a knowing smile. How? She doesn't know anything. Best not. She would instead shake her hair back, lift herself up on the bench, and let her legs dangle wide. Slatter and she can manage. One quick burst of bravery before her brain gets the better of her. Too damnably obvious, so utterly Gryffindor. He'll laugh and say something like that and assure her that these non-faults can be corrected with some judicious education. He'll linger over that word as he unhooks her brazier, lets it fall into her lap onto the floor. He'll trace little sigils, alchemical symbols across her skin, a triangle. Fire, he'll breathe, his face lowered to hers, his nose nudging aside her hair to impart this wisdom in a whisper. Salts, wealth, the body, a circle transected by a line centered on the areola of one breast. And then with his other hand along the sensitive skin of her inner thigh, an inverted triangle transected, earth. His fingers will rest there a moment, testing. She'll shift in invitation, or perhaps she'll make some little sound that will render him susceptible to the same desire that's burning through her like lightning, shimmering like a cascade of magnesium sparks. Whichever it is, he'll slip those fingers delicately beneath the elastic of her knickers, easing them down. He'll notice the dampness. His observational skills won't have been dulled by mere passion. Perhaps he'll rub his thumb along the gusset and smirk at her. He's pleased with himself and she's pleased with herself that she's pleased him. And while she's thinking through this tangle, he'll grasp her ankles and lift her legs onto the bench so that her center is splayed out before him like some intriguing specimen. He'll fold her skirt back and upon her mons, he'll trace another glyph, circle subtended by cross. Venus, he'll intone, stroking the tail of the cross down, down into the damp thatch surrounding her eager vulva. Please, she'll gasp but he'll ignore her uncultured begging. She should know better than to interrupt a lecture. He'll tell her so, keeping that finger motionless inside her quim while he carefully lifts her flyaway hair from where it's clinging to her face. When she begins to writhe against his hand, he'll withdraw it, his mouth a little moe of disappointment. Really, Miss Granger, I expected you to exhibit more self-control. But this chastisement will be mockery only, made apparent in the way he guides her fingers, demonstrating how he would like her to pleasure herself. He'll step back to watch one of those elegant fingers gently tapping his lip. It will be the one he's had inside of her. She's certain of it and certain he will want her to deduce it. He'll quirk an eyebrow, thoughtful, and reach blindly, unerringly, for the ceramic pestle resting in the mortar behind him. It's cold against her folds, and the sheer indecency of this sets her pulse racing. 
He'll draw it slowly down her vulva, resting it finally at the crux of her cunt. Did anyone tell you to stop? He'll inquire, and she redoubles her efforts over her clip. He'll insert the pestle slowly, fingers barely brushing her as he does so, eyes bottomless. Her body warms this foreign object, and soon she's only aware of the rhythmic way he'll drive it into her in time with the undulations of her hips as her orgasm crests. But why has she done this? Why has she so relentlessly sexualized him in her mind? What is wrong with her that she would repay his nobility and sacrifice by desecrating his memory in this way? And anyway, he wouldn't have wanted her. Flinching with disgust, she pulls the pestle from beneath between her legs and lets it clatter to the floor beside the bed. She reaches blearily for the half-empty bottle of mezcal and tips back another mouthful before pulling the pillow over her head. Sleep is merciful, taking her quickly as she waits in quiet humiliation for this day to be over. Well done. That's such a good chapter, and you read it very well. I told you, autism spectrum is just performance, right? <laughs> yeah, hey. oh, that's great. So where can we find you online? My work is, as I already said, pretty much exclusively on AO3, Archive of Our Own. You can find me there as Zigadinus. The FFN stuff is not updated, and it can't be updated because I don't have my login information. I sometimes go and poke around and lurk on other communities, but I'm not active anywhere uh, except for LiveJournal. I am one of the oldsters. I love LiveJournal. It creates community and it, you know, I will be there until I die. So you can find me there at zigadinets.livejournal.com. Great. Okay. I also want to mention that we will have links to your work in the show notes. You really need to take the time to read some of this. And let's see. Oh, what are your future plans for Snape? Oh God, I should give him a merciful death. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I'm going to, I'm going to finish ink stains at some point. I mean, the, the goal right now is like, before I get tenure, this thing should be fucking done. We'll see if that happens. After ink stains, there is, you know, it exists as a plot and a mind maple file. There is a second fic called collateral damage, which is going to be, um, you know, with a title like that, it's going to hurt. It's going to, it's going to uh, answer a bunch of questions that you go, y'all have about Eileen. Um, I also um, have this idea right now that I'm playing with for like this, like kind of quasi crack fic. It might be like a buddy fic with a side order of SSHG, but it's, it's, it's a fic and it involves Neville and Rita Skeeter and shenanigans. And so like, maybe I'll write that at some point. Oh goodness. <laughs> that sounds interesting. Any advice for aspiring authors? Yeah. So I have like lots of really good advice and you should get a, a pen and paper and write this down. So number one, set your page color to gray tones so that you're not staring at a bright screen all the time. Have a good office chair, uh, take lots of walks, hydrate, do occasional core strengthening exercises. And if you're not interested in being a gym rat, gardening is really good for core strengthening. So these universal practicalities aside, I actually can't offer advice to the vast majority of fic writers because y'all are writing things that are like, they're a different genre from what I'm writing. So you might be writing porn or you might be writing a coffee shop AU and you know what, you do you. It is perfectly valid to write for yourself first and foremost. Having said that, I am not writing for myself. I'm 
I'm writing from this cultural understanding that I have that story is a living thing and where it lives is in other people's heads. So I'm writing for others in the sense that I want my stories to go off and find someplace to inhabit and have interesting lives by changing the way that people are thinking about the world or about themselves. So anyway, whatever your goal is, the, um, the number one tool that you have as a writer is tension. So you are in someone's head with your words and you want to stay there. People have lives. They have work, pets, family. They flip to a new tab or like, God forbid, they even put their phone or tablet down and they go to the fridge to eat cheese out of a bag. Maybe that's just me. But like once they go to the fridge, you've lost them. They are gone. You have no idea what's in their fridge. Like there could be chocolate in there or vodka or like a portal to Narnia. I don't know. The point is you have no control over them once they've gone to the fridge. The only place you have control over what an audience is going to do is while they're putting their eyeballs on what you've written. So your job is to keep them there and keep them engaged. And your best tool for doing that is tension. Now, tension isn't conflict. Conflict can involve tension, sure, but like tension is audience investment. It's the audience wanting to know what comes next or the audience being like, I need to Google that so I understand this or the audience, you know, just being really invested in things. And there's a lot of ways to create tension. And so I'll just share one of them because otherwise this conversation will be five hours. And although I wouldn't break a sweat, <laughs> um, you guys would be you guys would be in the fridge looking for the portal to Narnia. So my, my uh, number one way to create tension is to have a viewpoint character and to stick to that viewpoint character. So this means all the way through is like right down to your description. What does your viewpoint character know? And what do they notice in their environments based upon their personality and what they know and their lived experiences and their socioeconomic background, all of that. So like, for instance, Hermione in Ink Stains doesn't know what any of Snape's plants are. So I'm not going to go off on a long description of his collection of dendrobiums. I know what all the plants are and Snape knows, but Hermione doesn't and she doesn't care. So that's an example of how your viewpoint becomes your filter. Now, filters are fun because it gives you this opportunity to hide information from the audience. And in doing that, you are creating tension. Some of that information is going to be why other characters are doing the things that they are doing. Because remember that we're seeing other characters through our viewpoints, perceptions, and beliefs about that character. So what the other character thinks about themselves and what they're doing might be completely different. And it usually is if we're talking about real humans. So we can only know what's happening in our own head. And if we choose a good viewpoint character, we only know what's happening in that viewpoint character's head. And so that will structure the way that you write a piece of fiction. And there's all kinds of opportunities to create tension through unreliable narrators or through misperceptions or through just a lack of your viewpoint character's knowledge about what a situation actually is. And the audience is restricted to your viewpoint character. So you have all of this opportunity to take your knowledge and play with your audience a little bit. Um, and so that's my advice. Well, that's, that's wonderful advice. And uh, I think about this stuff a lot. Now I think about what I have to do for work as a reader. <laughs> There's an early chapter called Chekhov's Cat, I believe. Is that right? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and from what I could tell from looking things up, you were referring to what's known as Chekhov's gun. Is that right? <laughs> yes. 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 Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Somebody has has already twigged to what I'm what I'm doing there. So I'm not gonna let the let the cat out of the bag. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I I write very deliberately and everything that I'm writing is doing work in one way or another. 
So I guess that would be if you want another piece of unsolicited advice on writing is edit the fuck out of your stuff. Like be just brutal in editing and make sure that everything that you've written is actually doing work in terms of character development or um, it's creating a motif or it's something that you're going to use after. Don't, for God's sakes, don't info dump on people. And I'm so guilty of this because <laughs> I know so much and I want to info dump. And so like the part that I read you about disseminated intravascular coagulopathy that actually becomes a metaphor for what Hermione has been doing as a character in her relationship with Ron. She's just been like being really selfish to, to be very brief in the complexity of that, that dynamic. And she recognizes that through this lens of her perception of what snake venoms do. So it, that info dumping it's serving, it's serving a goal because it's giving us like a lot of the complexity of why Snape couldn't have lived. And it's also serving as a motif and an extended metaphor or an analogy for Hermione as a character and some of her interactions. So make sure that everything you're doing is doing work and edit, 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 edit. There's so much stuff that I just completely pull out and throw out of ink stains. Like this thing would probably be 500,000 words at this point if I kept everything. Well, I'd love that. <laughs> I'd love more quantity, but that's not really true. The, the quality is what matters. Mm -hmm. And you see how I, d I uh, completely misdirected you there from Chekhov's cat? That was deliberate. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh I know a character in your story that does that too. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> oh, fun. Well, Ziga Genus, thanks for joining us today. It's been really fun. This was so much fun. And like, I, I love talking about this stuff. I love chatting about the craft of writing and I really appreciate having a platform to chat with you today. And if folks are at all intrigued by this work, one, I'm sorry for the fact that I'm terribly slow about updating. I, I have a life and it's complicated. Um, and two, thank you so much for, for being interested in my work. And I would love to hear from you. Yeah. Okay. Good deal. And I guess we'll just say goodbye then. Bye-bye. This was so much fun. And that was our first conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. We decided to meet again to cover a few more topics. And we'll play that talk on episode 14, which will be the show after the next, our Alan Rickman birthday special. Go to our FICREX page to find links to Ziggy Danis' amazing work at snakechatpodcast.com. Be sure to leave comments or thank yous. Be sure to tune in on February 21st, Alan Rickman's birthday, to help us celebrate the great man and his contribution to the HP world. Thanks to Maria, Nix, and Pet Genius for their behind-the-scenes work. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Tumblr and Twitter, email us, or leave a voicemail. We really want to hear from you. Be sure to check out Care of Magical Shippers podcast. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay snarky.